Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There are people who just ain't right. You know what I'm talking about. Folks who just look at life and the universe with a different perspective. And sometimes that perspective is, well, a little crazy, you know? Hey, in some cases, it might not be their fault. It could be a genetic thing. The brain chemicals operate in abnormal ways. The right side of the brain overpowers the left side. Or maybe, maybe it's a genuine case of mental illness. You know, depression, schizophrenia, fetal alcohol syndrome, which is all serious stuff. Or maybe this craziness is the result of too many foreign chemicals ingested too quickly over too long a period of time. And if you're talking about professional musicians, maybe craziness is just, I don't know, an occupational hazard. Your creative urges and drive to make great art mixed with late nights and booze and drugs and sex and the self-indulgent opportunities of being a rock star and... Let me see where I'm going with this. I mean, if this was your life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for months or even years on end, wouldn't you go a little nuts? Yeah, probably. And believe me, you wouldn't be the first. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome to the show. I'm Alan Cross, and this episode is all about the craziest, most insane people in the history of New Rock. And I know some of what we're going to talk about is going to appear judgmental to some, but I think we can all agree that the behaviors we're going to discuss are not, um, well, conventional in the grand scheme of society. I'll tell you what, I'll lay out all the undisputed facts. You make your own call, okay? Let's begin with Iggy Pop. Now, Iggy is okay now, but there was a time in his life that people thought the man was genuinely insane. And, and they had a point because Iggy was the most extreme rock dude of his day. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, part of his stage act was to cut himself up with broken glass and then rub raw meat all over his body, and then, for good measure, spread a jar of peanut butter over his body before dropping his pants and stage diving into the crowd. When he wasn't on stage, he was living at Stooge Manor, a rented house he shared with his bandmates in Detroit. Any female who dared enter was asked to donate her panties to a collection that was stapled to the kitchen counter. When Iggy decided to get married for the first time, the ceremony happened on the front lawn of Stooge Manor, with the groom wearing a Nazi uniform. The bride was a groupie nicknamed Potato Girl, and, and please don't, don't ask why she was the Potato Girl. In Iggy's defense, though, a lot of this was powered by very large quantities of drugs, including LSD, Coke, and PCP. Oh, and speaking of PCP, here's a, a wild story. In the early 1970s, Elton John had made enough money to start his own record label, and one of the first guys he wanted to sign was Iggy Pop. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. Elton flew to an Iggy gig in Atlanta, where for some reason, Elton John decided to surprise Iggy by dressing up in a gorilla costume and joining Iggy on stage. Problem was, Iggy was so strung out on PCP that he thought this was a real gorilla coming after him, and the uh, resulting freakout was rather intense. Elton John left with, without signing Iggy to a record contract, by the way. By 1974, his band, the Stooges, had broken up, and Iggy was reduced to a babbling, wandering junkie prone to blackouts. He had no money, no place to go. And the last straw came when the LAPD found him under the counter of a burger joint. When he was brought before a judge, he gave him a choice. Jail or a mental hospital. What would you do? 
The only visitor Iggy received while at that L.A. mental treatment center was his new friend David Bowie. And old Dave wasn't the most sane person on the planet either. Bowie was high from the moment he relocated to Los Angeles. His drug intake was almost as heavy as Iggy's. It was coke, mostly. He kept big bowls of it around his house. And, as you might guess, it wasn't long before his mind started to go. Here are just a few examples of loopy David Bowie behavior in the early and mid-1970s. Number one. He believed his swimming pool was possessed by Satan. He refused to dip so much as a toe into the pool until somebody performed an exorcism. Around the same time, Bowie met two young people whom he believed were trying to get him to impregnate them so they could give birth to the Antichrist. To make sure these people couldn't use any part of his person for any nefarious magical plans, Bowie was afraid to throw anything out. For example, he kept all his urine in the fridge and was very careful of how he disposed of his toenail clippings. Oh, and there's more. Bowie became convinced that he was about to be abducted and probed by aliens. He bought a telescope that he took everywhere with him so he could sweep the skies because apparently the mothership was coming for him, and he, you know, just wanted to be prepared. He also had an assistant whose job it was to go out to all the bookstores she could find and get every single book she could on UFOs. After filming the movie The Man Who Fell to Earth, where Bowie played, strangely enough, a drugged-out alcoholic alien, he stole all his alien clothes and put them someplace safe for when the real aliens came. Bowie was also convinced that he was trying to tell himself something. He had a special turntable made so he could listen to his own records backwards because Bowie was convinced he was sending secret messages to himself. There's more, but I think you get the idea. No wonder one of Bowie's mid-70s characters was named Aladdin Sane. Get it? A lad insane? Passion bright young things Takes him away to war Don't fake it Saddling the sandal strings We have to be careful throwing around the word crazy because sometimes there are underlying medical conditions causing strange behavior. Such was the case of Ian Curtis, the lead singer from Joy Division. Ian did some nutty things in his life, and yes, he was into drugs, but he also had some serious physical problems. Ian was a sickly dude who had a rare condition called porphyria. It caused him to be allergic to sunlight. More serious was his epilepsy. Towards the end of his life, the seizures came more and more frequently and got more and more severe. His physical condition added to his already depressed mental state, and after a while, his mental condition veered towards suicidal. And on May 18, 1980, Ian Curtis hung himself. Was he crazy in the pejorative sense? No, the man was genuinely mentally ill. Those around him think so. And looking back on Ian's lyrics, it's now easy to trace his slide into crushing depression. You know how we sometimes hear about people who claim that the end of the world is just around the corner? This is a story about one of those guys. 
Killing Joke was a very heavy post-punk band from England, and in 1982, they released an album called Revelations. And yes, it was inspired by the apocalypse, as described by St. John in the Bible. After the album hit the stores, singer Jazz Coleman decided that the world really was about to end. Jazz, who coincidentally shares a birthday with occult master Aleister Crowley, had determined through various occult means that the real apocalypse was at hand. So after a gig in Brighton, England, he suddenly disappeared. He placed two phone calls, one to his mother to say that he was all right, and a second to Killing Joke's record label. Jazz then made his way to Iceland, because according to his readings and interpretations, that, for whatever reason, was the safest place on the planet. On April 7th, 1982, Jazz released a statement severing all his remaining ties with Killing Joke, except for Jordy, the band's guitarist, who thought that Jazz might be onto something after all. So he flew to Iceland, too. They waited, and they waited, and they waited, and to their chagrin, nothing happened. Meanwhile, they worked with a series of Icelandic bands, one of which evolved into the Sugar Cubes, who, of course, eventually gave us Bjork. After seven months of waiting for the apocalypse, they gave up and went back to England as if nothing happened. Crazy? Jazz and Jordy didn't think so. Killing Joke in Love Like Blood. And despite singer Jazz Coleman's predictions, the planet, as far as we know, is still here. One of the great British bands of the 1990s was the Verve. Okay, they were a little flaky, breaking up and reforming all the time, but there were some underlying reasons behind all that. Some had to do with singer Richard Ashcroft, but most involved guitarist Nick McCabe. See, Nick is a very sensitive guy and was prone to emotional breakdowns. He was prone to bouts of severe depression and paranoia. And he had this really rocky relationship with his mother, which somehow figured into everything. In 1998, he announced that he was quitting The Verve for good, just weeks before what was supposed to be the band's biggest tour ever. And since then, he's alternated between being a recluse and some kind of wandering spirit. He lived in his mother's basement for a while. Then he was spotted doing something in Spain. Then they saw him in Paris. And then he was back in England. And contrary to what you may have heard, he never, ever had a job working at a Casio factory someplace in the Middle East. But let's not let singer Richard Ashcroft off the hook. He had his crazy period, too. Once he just disappeared for five days. Nobody knew where he was. Then there was the time he did donuts with his car on someone's lawn until all the wheels came off. When the Verve finished a tour, Richard came home to find that his landlord had changed the locks to Richard's apartment and had sold off anything that was inside, including his record collection, because Richard owed 3,000 pounds in back rent. And with all his remaining possessions stuffed into a single plastic bag, Richard moved to London to sponge off friends. He didn't have a single change of clothing with him. Tell you, the Verve was one strange band. But at least they knew it. This baby. There are many people who still wonder if Kurt Cobain was mentally ill at the time of his death. If so, that would explain why a rich, talented, famous, good-looking rock star would suddenly decide to end it all. The years of drug abuse and his chronic stomach pains may have exacerbated some kind of pre-existing condition, 
and at least one doctor offered his opinion in the weeks after Kurt's death. British psychologist Simon Manchip says Cobain's suicide note, which reads, I feel guilty beyond words, I don't feel the passion anymore, indicates mental illness. He adds that press reports should have concentrated more on that depression and less on the premature deaths of other rock stars, such as Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison. The media, he says, needs to be educated. Now this is a perfect time to segue from Kurt Cobain's mental issues to those of his widow, Courtney Love. As erratic rock stars go, you can't get much better than the widow Cobain. Where do you start? Well, her drug use, breaking into an ex-boyfriend's house, flashing David Letterman on national television, having a bikini wax done in the middle of a magazine interview, lying down naked on a London street in December for a photo shoot, drug charges, assaulting fans, simulating breastfeeding with a grown man right on the street, missing court dates, and when she does show up for court, she'll say something or do something weird, like bring her dog. So what's the deal with Courtney? Is she truly insane or is it, uh, like some suspect, on act. I had a chance to talk to Hank Harrison, Courtney's biological father, and he had some interesting perspectives on Courtney's mental state. But when she's she's up on David Letterman's show, that's an act. When she bares her breasts for David Letterman, you know, it's just you can follow what she says. That she's her her stream of consciousness is, however deformed it may seem, it's it's uh, purposefully dedicated to making progress towards getting her out of trouble or wiggling or making people think she's crazy so that they won't sentence her too heavily or the judge will take sympathy on her and stuff like that. No. So this is all an act. This is all orchestrated and, and she, she doesn't need to be saved. She knows exactly what she's doing and, and she doesn't need anybody's help because there's a master... Oh, she needs help, but it's a different kind of help. In other words... Uh, several people have accused her of being a pure psychopath. I think she's she's got a she's sociopathic, uh, and and God knows I am a little bit myself. But I you can get rid of that if you want to. I mean it's it's like a I, she's ADHD and you know um, hyperactive disorder. You know. God bless you, Courtney. You certainly make music journalism interesting. So who's in the next generation of strange musicians? A look ahead next. One of the strangest dudes to come down the road in a long time is Craig Nichols, the lead singer of The Vines. The Vines are this much hype band from Sydney, Australia, who put out some pretty solid music. However, Craig isn't always solid himself. If you Google any reviews in The Vines, chances are you'll find a line that reads, Craig Nichols is going to die, or Craig Nichols is going to kill himself. Harsh, I know, but look for yourself. In fact, you'll find a lot of comparisons between the Vines and Nirvana and Craig and Kurt. One English paper put them on the cover with the caption, The Screwed Up Story of the Best Band Since Nirvana. Now, Craig is an extreme dude. He apparently takes lots of drugs. He seems to be drunk almost all the time. Rumor has it that he must eat at McDonald's at least once a day. 
And then live, the vines can get pretty weird. Lots of equipment gets broken at some vines gigs with Craig leading the destruction. Maybe it's because Craig hates to play live. He'd, he'd rather just mess around in the studio if that's okay with everyone. And when it comes to interviews, you got to be careful. Craig might be okay, or he might suddenly wig out if he shows up at all. There was that incident in May of 2002 when he freaked out at an executive from the Vines record label who brought some people to meet Craig on the bus. In September 2002, there was an unexplained incident in Brisbane, Australia, where he bombarded passing cars with Big Macs and Flayo fishes. December 2002, the Vines get a big break with a spot on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. But during rehearsal, Craig trashed the set. They were kicked off the show, naturally, screwing up one of their best chances to reach a whole new audience. January 2003, Craig and bass player Patrick Matthews get into a brawl on stage during a gig in Boston. April 2003, Craig refuses to drink any Coca-Cola after he says his image mysteriously manifested itself on a Coke can on the tour bus. And then there's his reputation of locking himself in the bathroom for up to three hours before a show. The man is, I'm afraid, quite bonkers. You can Another new and ultra-strange member of the new rock world is a guy named Pete Doherty. He sings and plays guitars for a group called the Libertines. He's one of the founding members. The Libertines are cut from the same cloth as the Vines. Also the Hives and the Strokes and the Datsums and the Doves. You know, part of that whole raw indie rock scene. Pete is easily the freakiest member of the band and is prone to bouts of, um, well, let's call it malevolent weirdness. Most of which are fueled by an addiction to heroin and cocaine. He's been in and out of the band and in and out of rehab. He started with smack when he was 18, and at one point, he was injecting four or five times a day. During one of the times he was kicked out of the band, this would be July 25th, 2003, he broke into one of the band members' houses in retaliation for, of course, being kicked out of the band. He took a guitar, a VCR, a computer, a harmonica, and a CD player. He was quickly caught and sentenced to six months in jail. When he got out, he found that he still had a drug issue, and he was 300,000 pounds in debt. Last I heard, Pete was back in the band, but we'll see how long that lasts. Meanwhile, Pete has found himself a part-time job. For 500 pounds, he'll come and play a gig in your living room. Oh, and I should mention that the Libertines have their own spiritual advisor. His name is John the Rabbi Conmi. He's, he's Catholic, but that hasn't stopped him from being called Rabbi. He gets paid in alcohol, and he's so popular with Libertines fans that he has his own Japanese fan club. Chances are you'll be hearing more about Pete, the Libertines, and their rabbi. And it may not all be that good. I have one final example of a strange dude, and this guy was apparently certifiably insane. Or at least that's what his record company maintains. I mean, they went so far as to issue his commitment certificate as part of his official record company biography. It looks like a medical file, but we'll get back to that in a second. His real name was Charles Lopez, but he insisted on being called Rust Epic. Charles, or Rust if you prefer, used to be in a band called Crazy Town. Remember them? They had a hit with a song called Butterfly a while back. 
But if you believe his official record company biography, Rust was kicked out of the group for being too crazy. Let's think about that for a second. How bad does it have to be before you're kicked out of a group called Crazy Town? When that happened, Rust changed his name to Pre-Thing and relocated from California to the Michigan State Mental Institute. Yes, he was allegedly hospitalized, which is where that record company document comes from. Despite that, he managed to get a solo record deal in 2002. He spent a year working on it, writing and playing virtually everything himself. He then moved with his wife to Las Vegas, where he continued to work on music and play the occasional gig. And finally, the record was done. It was called 22nd Century Lifestyle and was set for release on April the 6th, 2004. But then on March 8th, 2004, Rust slash Prething died of a heart attack. He was just 35. Which is too bad, too, because the first single from this solo album showed some major, major promise. This is the late and apparently somewhat insane pre-thing of a song called Faded Love. Like I said at the beginning, rock and roll is a really weird way to make a living. And if you're predisposed to weirdness, your job and the people around you will simply reinforce that. Some cases involve drugs. Others involve genuine mental illness. And you can't help wonder, such in the case of someone, say, oh, like Courtney Love, if it all isn't done for effect. Whatever the case, rock and roll will always be a place where strange and bad behavior is not only tolerated, but often encouraged. Maybe a little insanity is a prerequisite. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.